We're going to take a look at an interesting thing today, um, and I have some questions for you. We can go ahead and pull up uh, the teaching stuff while I do a little bit of shade maintenance here so I don't fry in front of you and combust. There it is. Anybody appreciate our music today while you were doing your greeting? <laughs> So I grew up uh, first part of my life in the 1970s and had two older sisters uh, who uh, loved pop music. Well, the 70s were owned in part by ABBA, right? I also grew up in church. And so uh, being a pastor's kid, I was very familiar with the word ABBA uh, as a child. And so when I heard ABBA was having all these uh, great songs, I immediately assumed, well, of course, they're a Christian band because they named their group after God the Father, <laughs> Abba. Turns out I was not correct on that. Can anybody tell me, a little music trivia, uh, how did the band come up with the name Abba? Anybody know? Well done, all right, Lyndon Murphy in the house. That's right, the first letter of their first names and that's how they got Abba. But Abba actually uh, has a deeper meaning which we're gonna look at today. It's a word that Jesus used to describe God. It was his favorite word to address God. And we're going to unpack that deeply. But to get there, I've got a bunch of questions that we're going to sort of touch on today. Uh, these are also on the worship elements page on our website. Uh, and we'll get there in just a second. But just to show you how important this word was uh, to Jesus, on the next slide, we have what should be, if you can't see this, it's okay because you know it. Uh, this is the Our Father prayer, the Lord's Prayer, where he starts off Our Father who art in heaven. You know it, we do it every week. Uh, but if we were to look at it or hear it from Jesus, he wouldn't say Father, he would say Abba. And so the prayer really is, Our Abba, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And by the way, just before I go any further, the disciples were asking him how to pray. They weren't really looking for a magic formula prayer, like, okay, we want to make sure we get it just right. And so he gives them this prayer, not as a one-and-done thing to memorize it, and you're going to make God happy. Memorizing it's great, but mainly because this was a mode of prayer, a way of thinking about prayer. There are elements here. There's an organization of things that, that Jesus was wanting us to meditate on, to use to help facilitate our relationship with God, starting with this very address. Our Abba, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, this is kind of a freebie. I'm going to be talking more about this next week. But when we look at that word kingdom, uh, we can easily confuse that with normal ways of thinking about a kingdom uh, with a castle and a king and etc. That's really not uh, the, the way that Jesus thought about this. We'll unpack this more next week when we talk about what was Jesus actually trying to do in the world. Uh, but really the the way to think about this, this is a new way of, a new phrase for this, would be divine commonwealth. Divine commonwealth. So it's a God-ordered way of being together in common. That's a very different feel than a kingdom with a king on the throne. We're going to talk about why that matters in a moment. And this gives us a clue that there are some language issues with the Bible that we have and some translation issues. But I digress. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. 
And then did you notice Jesus forgot the last part of his own prayer? Can you believe it? He forgot the part because thou is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Can you believe Jesus forgot it? It's because it wasn't there in the original. That was a later addition uh, for very interesting historical reasons. So this begs the question for me, many questions, knowing that we're really looking at Abba today. And there's a book, if you might want to pick it up, uh, it's called Jesus' Abba by a man named John Cobb, who is a well-written theologian in the world. You can pick it up. It's a 130 pages, so it's not too long. He gets into some deep weeds on this stuff, and I'm trying to give you some of the overview of some of the insights that he have, which is pretty good. But I had a lot of questions on this, like uh, on the next slide. Like, where did we learn to address God anyway? How did, how did we come about that process? And what names of God have you used the most uh, throughout your life? So my guess is, if you're like me, uh, you learned how to address God uh, from those shaping forces of faith in your life. You likely modeled whatever you were doing after what you heard in church or what you heard your parents doing or your key influencers. So if they said, this was a super common way uh, for many years, I think it's still around, but you'll hear in some churches, Father God, a lot. Well, if you heard that growing up, then your very natural response when you begin a prayer is Father God or Heavenly Father or Almighty God or Dear Lord. Uh, did I hit most of them? Did any of you have anything else other than those primary ones? Okay, I kind of thought that would probably cover it. Um, so, you know, I want you just to be thinking about this stuff and these questions you can mull over uh, for the rest of your life. I wanted to ask the question, why do we address God with different names at all? Why did that show up? You know, there are hundreds of names for God, for one God, in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Hundreds. A lot of these are born out of experience. People had an experience of God caring for them, and they said, I'm going to name you El Shaddai, for instance, because you cared for me. And so that became one of the major names of God, El Shaddai, which I will be talking about a little bit more. Uh, but sometimes it's not just our experiences. Uh, sometimes our hopes affect our naming. So if we really want God to kick our enemies' butts, then we're going to call on God to be our great warrior king. God, come and smite our enemies because we're absolutely certain they are your enemies too. See what I'm saying? So whatever we're hoping for informs our identification of who God is, and therefore we address God in that way. Do you follow me? It's not just our experience. It's our hope for the world and what we hope to see happen there. Um, then I ask a question, does it even matter how we address God? And I'm going to say to you it matters very much how we address God because the name that we use with God sets us up mentally and emotionally for a particular kind of relationship with God. And I'll unpack that in a minute. So I'm asking the question, why did Jesus address God as Abba? And why hasn't Abba dominated? Because my guess is you're thinking Father, so you heard Good Father and Heavenly Father and all that. But there's a nuance here about this word Abba that is lost literally in translation. So Jesus knew Hebrew, but he didn't speak it much except for probably in his uh, circles. Uh, Jesus spoke Aramaic which was related to Hebrew. Uh, it was the common language of Israel at that time. We have nothing in writing from, uh, in terms of our scriptures in Aramaic. The Old Testament's in Hebrew. The New Testament was in Greek. 
later on it got translated uh, in all of it into Greek, then eventually it got translated into Latin and so on and so forth, all of which I'll, I'll unpack here. But the, the real essence of Abba, uh, as Jesus meant it, uh, did, has not dominated. In fact, I'm guessing that most of you, very rarely, unless I make you do it, or you read a book that tells you about it, that you don't use the word Abba in the way it would translate today. Because the way Abba would translate today would be Daddy. Daddy. Maybe for you, how you called your, your intimate name for God or for your father might be Dad or Papa. But that's the kind of intimacy we're talking about. We're not talking about um, corporate professional dad who, when he comes home, remains the corporate professional in the household. And the children need an appointment <laughs> to see him. We're talking about a daddy who, as soon as he walks in the door, his children run to him because they're so excited that daddy's home. And they embrace him, and daddy does not blow them off, but daddy gets down on his knees on their level so that he can embrace them right back and take joy in whatever they did that day, even if all it was was to get dirtier than they were when he left in the morning. That's the daddy we're talking about. That is the tone that we're talking about with Jesus. That is not the tone that we hear in most people's address of God. Wouldn't you agree? Uh, sometimes we think of Father, and uh, there's a song I'll probably introduce next week. It's not a new song in culture. It's a well-known song in a lot of churches. It's called Good, Good Father. And I was hesitant to even bring it because Father for a lot of people has a lot of painful connotations. We think about abuse, we think about emotional distance, we think about not being there emotionally or just not being there. Uh, in so many ways, so many people uh, have trouble with the word father. And so when father is used to address God, it really complicates things. And I fully appreciate that. In fact, I would say that 100% of men I know and have known throughout my life have daddy issues. 92.8 of them don't know they have daddy issues. <laughs> and 3%, if that high, have actually done something to acknowledge their daddy issues and help resolve them. I know that our relationship with fathers in particular is deeply complicated. I'm asking you when you think about Abba, Father, Daddy, Papa, I'm asking you to think not about the worst of the stories that we could share. I'm asking you to think about the very best because that's how Jesus experienced God as a daddy who was loving, supportive, nurturing, with him, attentive, showed up to everything, always a smile on his face, strong with wisdom and loved his sons and daughters enough to guide them if, as much as could be, but in the very best of ways. This is the God of Jesus. This is the God that Jesus experienced. And so when Jesus lived his life and started talking about who God was and what God was like, it was always coming from the place of daddy. 
What a difference in the way we think about the character and nature of God. Not almighty warrior God, Daddy. Not the God who's going to kick all my enemies' butts because they deserve it, Daddy, who loves all of his children. A very different picture. And there's a reason why, many reasons why, that it has not dominated our thinking. I know you're not going to be able to read this on the screen, but Trudy, you can uh, follow me along if you can. This is a quote um, that'll get to Alfred North Whitehead, who was a process philosopher and theologian about 100 years ago. In general, according to Alfred North Whitehead, we have viewed God as an imperial leader writ large, or the giver and enforcer of moral law, or as Aristotle's unmoved mover. So sweeping through history, sweeping through human development, what Whitehead is saying, and I think he's right, uh, that we have generally come up with a God as one of three things. The imperial leader, so the emperor king, uh, a lawgiver, the judge on the throne, who's going to judge us all, right? You've heard that one, I'm sure. Or the unmoved mover, the one who cannot be affected, who's that strong and that unchanging that nothing changes him whatsoever. Absolutely nothing, including you and including your prayers and including what happens to you. Because if God cannot change, it means that what is happening to you cannot affect God. That's one of the little problems uh, with that way of thinking. So Northhead is recognizing that this is how human history has generally defined God in one of these ways. But Whitehead recognized that, this is when I start the quote, in the Galilean origin of Christianity, it's where Jesus grew up, there is yet another suggestion which does not fit very well with any of the three main strands of thought. This is what Jesus taught. It does not emphasize the ruling Caesar, the imperial emperor type guy, or the ruthless moralist, that'd be the judge on the throne, or the unmoved mover who is not affected by anything in creation. It dwells upon the tender elements of the world, which slowly and in quietness operate by love. And it finds its purpose in the present immediacy of a kingdom not of this world. Love neither rules nor is it unmoved. Also, it is a little oblivious as to morals. It does not look to the future, for it finds its own reward in the immediate present. Uh, Jesus talked so much about living in love, loving God, building our lives on knowing we're loved by God, and letting that do its work. Uh, one of the great church fathers from many years ago, he boiled it down this way. He said, you want to know how to do this faith thing? Love God and do as you please. Because Augustine was so convinced that if we were truly raptured, transformed by the love of God in our life, it would translate into ethical behavior and love toward everyone around us, including the planet that we live on radical idea. And I think he was onto something because I think that's what Jesus was trying to communicate. Well, there's some other reasons why Abba was replaced with these other views. And actually they're very 
very uh, understandable and even historical reasons. And so on the next slide, we're going to look at these things. And the first thing that we want to talk about is the Vulgate. I'm sure many of you remember Vulgate. He was the arch enemy in the Harry Potter series that, uh, that he was... No, that's not the Vulgate. The Vulgate is the Latin translation of the Bible uh, that was put together masterfully, truly masterfully, by St. Jerome. And he did great work. Uh, translating the Hebrew and the Greek. I can't remember if he took it off the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation, or if he did both. He did both uh, because he got to one word where he kind of hit a roadblock. He was translating out of the Hebrew scriptures, and he saw that there were two words for God, in particular, that were causing him a problem. One was Yahweh, which you've probably heard, which is a, sort of a breathless word. Uh, you can't really, you require breath to even say it. Uh, and the other word was Shaddai, S-H-A-D-D-A-I. A lot of times you'll hear it El Shaddai, like I mentioned before. I wasn't quite sure how to translate this thing, because they were both kind of used loosely for God in Hebrew, but it didn't make any sense to call an El as, as God as well. And he had to figure out how do we distinguish these two things. And so he made a choice for whatever reasons went through his mind, and he was well-meaning and brilliant for sure. But sometimes languages don't translate easily. Hebrew doesn't translate well into English all the time. Same thing with Greek. There are multiple options. You kind of got to figure out what makes the most sense. Well, he chose the word almighty for Shaddai. And so many times when you see almighty God showing up in an English translation, that comes from the Hebrew name El Shaddai. But Jerome missed it in the Vulgate. And because he missed it, we've missed it. You know a definition of Shaddai? <laughs> Breasted one. Let me just take a drink of water so I can say that again with confidence. You heard me. Breasted one. Like a mother who nurtures her child loving, caring, soft, welcoming, huggy. Shaddai, his mother. <laughs> Not almighty, almighty in a different kind of way. Probably Jerome was looking at that and said, said, and I'm never going to get away with God-breasted one, so we got to come up with something else. Who's the strongest person in my life? Is my mother. So we're going to go with almighty, and we all know that I mean mother, so everybody's just going to get that. But nobody got it. Instead, we gave in to what is very normal in our thinking, which is power. Power is what gets things done. We need a powerful, almighty God who can do absolutely everything anytime this God wants. We don't need a soft-breasted God. That doesn't make any sense whatsoever. We don't need a nurturing God. We need a God who gets things done when we want to and can disregard the, obey the laws of creation and all these things because that's what an almighty God does. But that is not what the Hebrew Scriptures were trying to communicate. El Shaddai is the breasted one. El Shaddai is God like a mother who loves us like a mother could. That's the Vulgate problem. And then we moved into the creeds, which showed up in the first few centuries of Christianity. So we're going back a ways. Those creeds change things. If you ever read the Nicene Creed, and some people, uh, that's part of their church experience every week is to reiterate the, the, the creed. The weird thing about the creed, if you actually read it, is it says nothing about the life of Jesus. It just says some things about Jesus. 
It talks about who he was born to, uh, who got him killed, what happened after he got killed, and what happened on Easter Sunday. And that's kind of it. What the creeds did to us historically is take faith itself away from a relationship with God that needs to be worked out in faithfulness, and it turned faith into a list of things to believe about God, which is very different. We began to believe that it was really about making sure we had the correct beliefs instead of living faithfully. So we spend a lot of time making sure we have all of our beliefs in check. And if we can agree to all the beliefs, not the beliefs and theology and working these things out is not important. It is important. But that's not really the point that Jesus came to make. He came to teach a different way, a new way of being in the world, a new way of understanding God. Not to give us a new set of do's and don'ts. Because Jesus was saying, I know we tend to... Uh, we adopt this lawgiver way of thinking, but that's really not been my experience of God. I know that we think about God as distant and unmoved mover kind of thing, but that's not really been my experience of God. And I know we think about God as the king of this grand empire that's going to take over the whole world, but that's not been my experience of God. The experience of God that changed my life was a God of love who calls us to love and faithfulness as God is loving and faithful toward us. It changed my life, Jesus would say. And I believe it can change everybody and all of humankind. Which gets us to Anselm of Canterbury. You all remember Anselm. Fantastic work he did in somewhere around 1100 AD. So now we're talking about a thousand years ago. This is some time ago. What he did was codify what has become very popular and very familiar to us. The fancy word is penal substitutionary atonement. He is the lone person in history who is responsible for putting that to the top of the food chain when it came to what the church is all about. Learn penal substitutionary atonement, which means the story is that Anselm uh, used scripture to get there, but it wasn't a dominant idea until about a thousand years ago. And the, the thing that Anselm brought to the fore for the whole church to look at is God is so holy needs to be appeased by such a whopper sacrifice that only God could offer such a whopper sacrifice. And the only whopper enough is for God to offer God's self in the person of Jesus. So again, what was set in stone is the whole point of the Christian faith is to make sure that you accept the sacrifice because it's the only big enough one to get God to be okay with us so that we can one day get to heaven. As long as I say in my head, Jesus is Lord and he did this for me, my sins are forgiven, I'm good. Because that is the point of faith. Unfortunately, this is not how Jesus spoke. And it did not dominate his teaching and his ministry. This is a later edition. This is so hard for us to appreciate because this idea has so dominated Christian thought. So much so. And so much has been written on it and about it. And hey, it does wonderful things. So if that's working for you, that's great. Uh, you know, there's parts of this that, okay, I own it. Yeah, of course God loves us enough to, to make it possible for us and don't know all that. But, but understand that that didn't develop for a very, very long time. And we ought to ask why. 
And the reason we ought to ask why might lead us to the answer to the question, which is because it's always been about Abba. It's always been about Daddy. And that idea that Anselm made very popular doesn't fit with Jesus's Daddy. Well, things continued to develop after that, especially in the era of modernity. And we got into natural law theory. Uh, long story short, uh, we got into moralism real quick and re we replaced Mosaic law with a new, very Greek Christian ethic, which looked about the same, uh, even tighter in some ways. We see the Apostle Paul dealing with this in his time, uh, trying to eradicate things that we are putting in motion. Jesus dealt with this all the time with the Sadducees and the Pharisees of his day. You remember in his great sermon, he says, well, you've heard it said that the law says this, but I'm here to tell you this. Every time he says, you've heard it said, but I tell you, he's correcting a teaching by the religious authorities of his day. And he's generally broadening it, broadening it. Remember, they're the ones who wanted Jesus arrested because he was violating the Sabbath. Uh, the boys were out on a hike and they were hungry and so they picked some grain and they began chewing on it and the Pharisees looked at them and said, naughty, 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 shame on you. Uh, you're not supposed to pick grain on the Sabbath. And what does Jesus say back? He says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Later on, the Sadducees, or the, yeah, Sadducees, Pharisees wanted to get him arrested because he had the audacity to do two things, heal a blind man but the way he chose to heal the blind man was the actual offense. He spit in the dirt and made a mud paste. That mud paste was the same action as kneading dough. Therefore, he is violating Sabbath law, which says, you shall not knead dough on the Sabbath, otherwise it's a violation under God. And so they recognized him immediately as he must not be one of ours because he didn't obey the letter of the law. This is an example of where the church got to all over again in horrific ways. Protestantism uh, was born out of a re reaction to some of this. And yet Protestantism itself, under Luther, under Calvin, found themselves right in the same spot. So Calvin is wanting to govern his beautiful Geneva and have this place where God reigns. And you know what that was marked with? Some interesting theology in here, and he did great for his time, I suppose. But it also became ruthless in its attention to law. And if you departed from it, like some did, you would be burned at the stake at his order. We have a tendency to go to all these things. We have a tendency to want to boil down everything into a nice, neat package where all we have to do is give mental assent to it. Yes, I believe that, so I must be all right. We have a tendency uh, to want to go towards something that has everything to do with the next life to come and make sure we're going to get to heaven and not go to hell. And so as long as we know we just have to check that box, that feels pretty good to us, and we love legalism. We love it because we can control it, and we can be right by our own view, and we can tell others they're not right by our own view. It's fascinating how we can mix this stuff up. And then the final thing to talk about that I need to say has to do with the Bible itself. That over the last couple hundred, couple hundred years, biblical literalism became dominant. Jesus didn't think about the Bible, the sacred text, as God-breathed or God-inspired like modern people do. You've heard me talk about this many times. Uh, Jesus was aware that this is sacred text, but he in no way, shape, or form thought that God so uh, controlled the writing of the sacred text 
that the human element was removed. None of the rabbis believed that in his day. None of them. None of them looked at the Bible the way that some of our conservative friends look at the Bible today, which is basically that God wrote the Bible. There may have been a human being holding the hand, but God's will superseded it and moved it just the way God wanted it to be. One big terrible thing that that did for us is it made questioning the Bible itself and the people who were writing and the humanity of the people, it took that off the table. How can you question something that has been told to us immediately is perfect and accurate in every way? You can't. So you can't even ask the question, well, how come Jesus says Abba, but we see lots of other names for God in the Old Testament that aren't Abba, that kind of make God look out to be the ruling judge or that reigning king or the unmoved mover. And that certainly crept into the New Testament as well. You can see it within the Gospels themselves, which weren't written until 30 years after Jesus did his thing. Mission creep happened even in the Gospels. You hear Jesus talking about Abba, Daddy, Loving, Father, Breasted One. And over time, the creep started to come in. Well, that's great, Jesus, but we really want the soon and coming king. <laughs> Let's get back to that king who's going to kick everybody's tail. Let's get back to the lawgiver so we can keep people in their place. Let's get back to that unmoved mover who's untouchable and will remain that way forever. This is why Daddy has not dominated. There are historical reasons why the people who raised you probably did not lead off with daddy. It's in our own history. And my hunch is that as you're hearing me talk, some of you may be really, really, really uncomfortable with this. I'm okay with that because it should make us uncomfortable. On the next slide, just some final things here uh, to talk about. And I just say it this way, for Jesus to address God as Abba, as Daddy, required a recognition of who God is versus who we wish God to be. I really believe that Jesus had his own transforming moment. And I believe it happened somewhere around his baptism. Because that's when we saw a literal departure. Something happened to him that was profound an experience of the Spirit of God in a very present way that even other people recognize something's going on here as he's being baptized by John the Baptist. And then he goes on a camping trip for a long time. Anytime you see that number 40, if it's 40 days or 40 years, what the writers are telling us is it was a while. Not 39 days and he's packing up, but it was a while. So Jesus went into the wilderness sort things out and he came back saying it's daddy God is daddy not the daddy that so many people have bad memories of but like this ideal loving mother figure who's supportive and nurturing and is there and present and all of these wonderful things that every one of us wants our human father to be like and he couldn't stop talking about it. It changed the way he viewed other people, other people who were told that they didn't count, that God didn't want them. Jesus was able to look at them and said, I can't condemn her 
I can't condemn the woman at the well who everybody else has shunned out of the village so much so that the only time she can come get water is in the heat of the day. I can't look down on her because of daddy. Daddy looks at her and says, that is my daughter who is so suffering in isolation. The woman who's, you know, they're, they're using as a pawn saying, we just caught her in adultery. Uh, the law says to Stoner, what do you say, Jesus? A checkmate on Jesus' theology. And Jesus looks at her, ticked off that those who are leading Jewish, all things Judaism, are using this poor woman, a daughter of God, for their own political power play. And Jesus just has to catch his breath, so he goes down and scribbles in the sand for a while and says, Grr! That's what he said. Grr! And then he said, You who are sinless among you, cast a first stone. Right? He's just angry. I can just see him teeth clenching. So he's making cartoons and stuff and probably naughty words in Hebrew that nobody could read. Who knows what he's doing? He's getting it out of his system. And after it's all over, everybody's left because they got the message. It's just he and her. And what does he see? He sees a daughter of God. He sees his sister. He sees a woman that God cannot help but do anything but love. It changed the way Jesus saw everything. He'd even corrected his own prejudice early in his ministry. When he looked at a particular woman and said, You're not Jewish. I didn't come here to talk to non-Jewish people. And she makes the case, But don't even dogs get crumbs off the table? And he's like, Oh, yeah, Daddy, even you, Syrophoenician woman, our daughter of God, well done, your daughter is healed. Daddy changed Jesus' vision. It changed the way he taught about everything. How do you address God? Why do you address God the way that you address God? Have you ever thought about it? Will you choose to think about it? truth is, you can make a biblical case for all those other things that I mentioned. Even, even a horrible God that none of us would really want to follow who, who smites all the bad people. I mean, we think, hey, alright, I want that kind of God. Because I want, I want some people to get their comeuppance. But I want you to think about that. Because if we're so convinced that God is going to do such a, such a ruthless job of getting rid of all the people who haven't done it God's way, at what point do you realize that may include you. Now you may say, oh, but I said the magic words, so I'm okay, I'm covered, because I signed off on that belief statement. Really? You think God is going to be fooled by what came across your lips when your entire life is incongruent with the love and faithfulness of God? Does it make any sense that that is the God that we want? Do we want an unmoved mover who is unchanged by anything we do? Which would mean you're wasting your time with all of your prayers because God does not care. And God's going to do whatever God's going to do because that's what we're saying when God is that distance and unchanging. Do you really want an empire king who is untouchable? Is that the kind of thing that we really, really want? More importantly, if we dare to call ourselves Christian, if we dare to own a label as followers of Jesus, wouldn't it make sense 
if we primarily called God the way Jesus called God? Daddy. So I'm going to spend some quiet with you for a moment. And then on the next slide, go ahead and bring it up, Trudy. I rewrote the Lord's Prayer because Jesus told me it was okay today. I'm playing with this a little bit. And I'm very confident I'm okay to do this. Um, instead of the normal Our Father, I might have to say this out loud to you because you can't read it because of our technical difficulties. But I traded out Father for what I think reflects in part what Jesus' Abba Daddy was about. It says our loving, caring, attentive, supportive, nurturing daddy who art in heaven and then it goes all the way to the end. Uh, left out, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever because that's a little bit of mission creep that we see happening even in the New Testament text. So we're just going to honor the prayer that Jesus gave us without that tag because Jesus yeah. didn't say it yeah. originally. Yeah. Let that mess with yes. you a little bit. So we'll come back to this uh, when it's time. But for now, you just close your eyes with me and let's listen for a moment for what the Spirit might be saying. God, help us as uh, we breathe deeply once again. This time, God, help us listen for one or two things that really uh, jumped out at us today that we can't quite ignore. It may have been a concept that just really rubbed us wrong may have been a concept that just really wooed us and sound very attractive. Maybe what has been in us is gentle correction saying Jesus used daddy, a loving God. And for some of us here today to know that God is primarily a loving daddy rested one, mother, may be such solve for our wounds. While for some of us, we may be so frustrated by Jesus' term because it might unravel our theology. Breathe. What is bubbling up for you? bubbling up? What might God be hoping for you today because of what has bubbled up? And what are you willing to do in response? If this is in fact the whisper of God that is nudging you for greater wholeness, greater restoration, greater insight, think God might be wanting you to do in response to what God is moving in you today? God, I remember when I really needed a heavenly daddy. 
not because my dad was a monster, he wasn't, but my dad was human. And when I found your love at a very difficult time in my life, you changed everything. Not because you were a judge on a throne telling me how much of an idiot I was, because you didn't do that. Not because you were a king on a throne who just simply welcomed me into your court. You didn't do that. Not a distant, unmoved mover when I was in pain. You didn't stay distant. You met me. You met me in my pain. You embraced me in my struggle. You loved me. You loved me like a mother. You loved me like a daddy should. You were present. And my life was changed. Maybe some of you are here today and you just so need and long for that. And I just want to tell you it's so true. Your daddy loves you. Welcome it. Embrace it. Trust it as Jesus did. And let it transform your life. Now as people who want to follow Jesus, let's pray the prayer like Jesus taught us. And I'll help you get through the first few words. So please repeat after me. Our loving, caring, attentive, supportive, nurturing daddy who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. Amen. Thank you so much for coming today. I hope you had a good experience. If I can be helpful in any other way, please find me, catch me, tackle me, whatever. And we will be here next week. Thanks a lot. Thank you. It's good to be back. I've been itching to teach this one.